Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome back to the newest episode of the Untitled Investment Talk, this time with two very special guests, of course, as always, my co-host, Carl Michael. Carl Michael, thanks for being here with me. Yes, pleasure as always, Simon. And today with Anthony Day, partner blockchain at IBM Global Services, UK and Ireland, and of course, podcast host of a, a very, very well done podcast, I believe. Blockchain won't save the world. You should really all give it a listen. Anthony, thanks for being here. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you, Carl Michael, for the introduction. Really looking forward to speaking with you guys today. Now, of course, as a quick disclaimer, as always, nothing we discuss here should be construed as any form of advice, neither investment, nor tax advice or legal advice. We're just discussing our own opinions. Um, we are not lawyers. We are not your tax advisors. Do your own research and just enjoy the show. So as a kind of tradition in this podcast, Anthony, we always ask the question, what really brought you to the blockchain space? What makes you passionate about it? Was there like this one moment where it really clicked and you fell in love with Ethereum blockchain, with Bitcoin back in the day? Did you read a white paper? Which was the magical moment for you, if there was one? So it was definitely a bit of serendipity followed by good luck and maybe the universe leading me to this. I put out a post a little while ago of, of things that I studied back in university in, in kind of the early 2000s. And it was things like supply chain management, integration architecture, provenance, search and connectivity, a bunch of different concepts that have led me to a number of things that are things we focus on in enterprise blockchain today. I got my big break at Deloitte, their European or EMEA center of excellence for blockchain. It was based here in Dublin, Ireland, where I live. And at the time there was a vacancy to, to come in and lead the team alongside their COO, uh, sorry, alongside their CTO. And I couldn't say no, it's innovation, it's different. My background's in strategy and so I think this is one of the most interesting spaces to think about digital transformation or how we can impact the world with technology because we're doing it together. We're doing it globally. We're doing it in a borderless way. It's way, way, way more interesting than some of the other stuff you can be doing out there. So that's what gets me up every day. Anthony, I got to know you in this panel from Riddle and Code, which I moderated on the regulation of tokenization. And, and you've been a, a great panelist there. And here you are, our guest. But what do you like most, to be a guest on a show or to moderate a podcast? That's a really good question. I enjoy the discussion, right? So anything where you've got back and forth, where you're creating concepts, trading ideas, collaborating, and whether I've been the person to bring those experts or influencers together, or whether it's on someone else's show, the thing that's most important to me is that we're creating great content, that we're pushing the knowledge forward, that we're creating ideas or information that other people can use and be inspired by. So I realize that's a bit of a non-answer, but I think it's just doing the work that's most important. That's what I expected, honestly speaking. I would have given most probably the same answer if, if you would have asked me this question. I think in April, you did a podcast, which was an NFT roast. And NFTs are our topic today, right? So we'll talk about different types of NFTs, the evolution of NFTs and NFTs beyond arts and collectibles and the economic value of NFTs. But let's start at, at, at the very beginning. Maybe can you tell us what was the first NFT you ever bought? Yeah, so, I mean, ever since we've had public blockchains where the concept of tokens were created, right, ERC-20 or ERC-721, we've been able to use the idea of a token 
or an individual unit to represent something in the digital or physical world on a blockchain-based platform or in a blockchain full stack. And so actually it's been, I don't know, five years or so, 2018, I think was ERC721, but a long time is is the shorthand. And what, what has turned into today's representation, NFTs, the kind of publicly used term for representing what is typically understood as digital art, actually is, is short form and a very niche definition of what actually you can do with tokens and public blockchains in a whole bunch of different settings, right? In financial services, in consumer goods, in B2B and B2C, in real estate, in venture capital, in, in the underlying infrastructure behind settlement and reconciliation of any industry, right? That part of it is not sexy. That part of it is not going to give you financial freedom overnight, probably, but I think it's important for people to realize that the concept of what we can do with tokens and blockchain is much, much broader. But to bring it back down to the acute example, yes, you know what we've seen in the last couple of months or couple of years even is democratization of tokenization through platforms like OpenSea, where people can express themselves, can create art, can trade collectibles, right? CryptoKitties being an early example, CryptoPunks being an earlier example. Um, and have those as something that's of value to them because they're present in the scene or because they're interested in this. First one I bought was a country punk. It's an even lower fi version of a crypto punk, specifically with the Irish flag behind it. it. It's of absolutely no value whatsoever. It will never appreciate. But I like the idea that my first trial and error with NFTs was something very odd, very basic, and celebrating where I first got to work in blockchain. And the picture you use on your LinkedIn account, is this also an NFT or is it a self-created uh, pixel? It's not an NFT yet, but it's going to be. And, and we might get into that on the show today. That was that was a pixel art creation by a good friend of mine, Keir Finlow Bates. Uh, and together we're, well, he's, he's clearly leading out on a project called Souls that I've been giving a little bit of guidance and support to. And so when that comes to fruition, it's going to become an NFT. Definitely. Good luck from, from our side. And may I ask you a more broader question? If you look at this whole NFT space, we'll call it NFT verse, what really stands out there in your opinion? Or is there anything which is, which is very exciting or which you think is a com completely weird thing in your opinion? So what I find is particularly exciting, and I alluded to it before, is that public blockchains, borderless systems, connected communities, digital wallets, has allowed for democratization of this particular domain, of the creation of digital assets, of creation of digital content that can be traded in a borderless way for fiat currency or for cryptocurrency. That's fantastically powerful. Right, A lot of the innovation that we see in the world comes when we're able to democratize activity through technology. You think about photography previously, if you think about the cost of setting up startups these days, it's particularly low, the cost of being able to fund startups or product development through crowdfunding. All of these are concepts that have accelerated innovation because we've democratized them. Where we are in the maturity of NFT today is probably at the very, very, very beginning of what's possible because what people are using it for is to create JPEGs of apes with different facial features that may or may not be valuable to somebody because of artificially created scarcity, right? So at the same time, you're seeing this huge proliferation of anybody on in the planet can create a picture of a doge or a frog or a meme or whatever it is, 
put it up as an NFT and long story short, you end up creating thousands and thousands and thousands of records, maybe minting lots and lots of things on a public blockchain that may be of absolutely no value at all. But YouTube did very similar, right? If you go through the content that they created, you've created thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of rubbish content to get to the really good stuff that the world really needs. So I think the power in NFTs at the moment is that democratization. The other end of the spectrum, right? The industrial use cases are distinctly mundane. Right? This is under underpinning financial services infrastructure. It's about settlement and reconciliation in and automation to some extent in you know, traditional supply chains and value chains, which nobody is going to get excited about. Nobody is going to hodl for and will never go to the moon. But it is another use and a highly valuable use for decentralized technology. I think you mentioned something very important, which is... I think one of the main theses also for why NFTs are getting so big in basically the art space, which is emotion. And NFTs in this art space are really driven by emotion because people easily understand them. They are cute. They are funny. They are nice. I mean, think of Bored Apes uh, Yacht Club or also of the, but basically the Doge meme being sold off as NFTs. That all makes sense. And as you said, people can get excited about that. But Then again, if we think back maybe two or three years back in the day in 2018, a good friend of mine was writing his master's thesis on ESC721 and the different use cases of really non-fungible tokens, digital identity and all that stuff. And back then we were thinking of more mundane things, perhaps mundane, like identity on the blockchain with refugee camps using Ethereum to basically track which refugee has how many food stamps, has how much access to different resources, Or also, for example, concert tickets, the secondary market for tickets for concerts. Now, of course, due to COVID, less uh, of a thing. But back before in the good old days, it was a huge thing. Uh, the concert, um, well, the company doing the concert would sell tickets for maybe a hundred bucks. But then the secondary market on eBay and whatnot, they would go for five, six hundred euros. And that really never happened. But we're seeing this huge market with uh, really hundreds of millions um, in revenue being made for digital arts. Why do you think, maybe besides emotion, I mean, specifically because of emotion, this has proliferated so well? That's a really good question. I think you can apply some parallels here with early stage crypto or ICOs, right? I think a lot of it is going to be speculation. A lot of it's going to be maybe people taking the risk out of investing in crypto and looking at NFTs as a, an alternative asset class or an alternative alternative investment class, the barriers to entry are particularly low, right? So it's not that hard for people to download a MetaMask wallet, to create an account on OpenSea and to spend some money on something. It's not so hard for the, you know, the information relating to this market is also quite public. A lot of that's available on Telegram or Twitter or Reddit or wherever people follow the appropriate influencers who are trying to hype these markets up. You know, what drives the price? very similar to Bitcoin, right? It's There are some fundamentals. With things like Bitcoin, there are some fundamentals in terms of the cost of production, right? the opportunity cost of using other um, commodities or other asset classes to trade and move across border. Some of it's sentiment. right? Do we believe in the long-term value of these things? You know, people don't buy baseball cards and sell them in six months later because they haven't really appreciated yet. Those rookies haven't gone on to become the best pros in the world. Same sorts of thing with these NFTs. You're seeing lots of short-term gains and flips. 
But if you really believe that these are artifacts that were going to have long-term value, you wouldn't flip them. You'd hold them for as long as you possibly can and then see what happens. And then there is some degree of manipulation, right? People pumping and dumping or hyping up particular collections. You go into any thread on, on Twitter or, or anywhere you choose to find your information about some sort of NFT or somebody who's relatively well-known mentioning that they just bought one. And you'll see a million different, you know, me too examples of lizards, pandas, squids, seals, doges, you know, take your pick, insert animal JPEG here and everyone's shilling an alternative version of it because they think that's what the world needs right now. And some people will be able to manipulate that market for their own personal benefit. And if you get on the hype train at the right time, maybe you benefit too. If you get at the wrong time, maybe you don't. And that's some of the challenge or the risk in the scene as we see it right now. Yeah, I think you're really onto something there. Also, if we think back in maybe 2016, when the ICO market really got going in 2017, when it was on a very strong run, what we didn't have so much was widespread use of community apps like Discord or even Telegram groups. Yeah, Telegram was already kind of there, but Discord was still in its infancy. It was still, I think, selling video games back in the day. And it wasn't the place for every community to have its own home and like it's closed off chat and now just having a discord account and being in a couple of DeFi or nft servers you get so much spam about people trying to shill you the next um, art gallery on open seas and this is really a powerful powerful not multi-level marketing but network marketing system that kind of got going organically yeah, for sure. And and let's let's do ourselves a favor here, right? We're getting back down is that very narrow definition of what we think NFTs and tokens can be used for. Let's remember that this this is technology that can also be used for real estate, other forms of collectibles, goods and services, fashion, commodities, intellectual property can be tokenized and sold on, depending on you know, how you link the appropriate content to it. We we have to remind ourselves that this is the most hyped up or most visible version of this today, but actually, you know the work that I'm doing with IBM, other colleagues in the blockchain industry are doing around tokenization are much, much broader and maybe they're less visible, right? Maybe they don't get telegram channels all of the time. But the trillion dollar opportunity actually is in the digital assets in markets that require greater liquidity or that are looking to find better ways to access capital from non-traditional sources. And where also programmability and some of the features around blockchains and smart contracts can really elevate what they're trying to do. And that's where I think it gets super interesting. So I think that's a very good, yeah, a very good new topic to jump into from the last one. So where do you think the NFT space is really heading in the future? If we say this art type is kind of not forever, it's not maybe not sustainable. What do you think are the next really big things based on ESC721 and non-fungible digital identities? That's, that's a really good way of framing it as well, because what, what I would immediately do is saying, right, what are the digital capabilities that we are going to enable different industries, different geographies, different sectors to make use of, to then go and apply that to transform what they're trying to do, right? With, with NFTs, with non-fungible tokens, we are creating identities. We are creating a token of a digital representation of something, whether that be something physical in the real world, whether that be something digital, that we create a unique representation of, or something that is digital that has a link to something physical at the same time. Uh, some people use digital, right? Whatever that might be, that we are creating an instance of that identity. We are creating a link of ownership to that identity. We're able to create automation around activity, such as you know, if payment is completed, transfer ownership. If 
that particular item is verified on a whitelist, allow access, right? Certain future functionalities, such like the, the royalties approach, which is, I think, the, the most common example with the Kings of Leon NFT tickets, where if it was ever sold on to from one fan to another, the artist would get a percentage of whatever that sale price was, which I think is super interesting because that allows then the artists to, to continue to profit from their work or their eminence while they're still alive, right? The old adage is, as artists only ever make money when they're dead. Actually, if you as an artist create a piece of work or a piece of content or an experience or you know, a ticket that's worth something, or you can use an exchange for an experience, if you spend money and effort and time in impre- increasing the value of your brand or increasing the value of that experience, if someone else is profiting of having earned that early, why can't you benefit from that later? Right. So some of that automation or some of those additional functionalities, I think, get super interesting. And then where are you going to apply them? Are you applying this in a payment context, in a settlement context, in terms of validation, verification of credentials, verification of a health certificate, verification of a university degree, a whole bunch of places where you can apply those digital capabilities. What we have right now is we have loads of marketplaces, albeit very few of them joined up. Right? You have lots and lots of walled gardens of people creating NFT platforms that may or may not be usable or redeemable in other places. What I think we need is more places to then go and use the content that we're creating within these tokens. And I'm, I'm sort of trying not to use the word metaverse here because, again, that's quite an opaque term. But if you have a token which has content embedded with it, whether that relates to the features of a particular character if you talk about loot, right, certain characteristics of something that may not even exist yet, that it's strength five, you know, magic four, endurance 50, right? Where am I going to use that? What am I going to do with that? You know, if CryptoKitties could suddenly be imported into a, a gaming experience somewhere else, if you've got that kitty, you can play around with it. You can do something with it. If you've bought a virtual garment or if you have any any sort of virtual garment that could be used in the context of another gaming or virtual or AR experience, who's creating the interoperability? Who's creating the functionality for those digital items to be usable? Right? Who's creating marketplaces for me to be able to trade or to fractionalize ownership of real estate in Florida right? or metals in Russia? This is the next challenge we have. We've identified where we can use the concept, but in scaling, I believe the challenge is in the infrastructure, the standards, and then the interoperability. Anthony, you already mentioned now a couple of, let's say, industrial applications of NFT in the B2B space, beyond, I think, the art space and, and the collectibles, which is more B2C, I would say. I think you gave a, a couple of good, good examples here. Would you care to also provide us with a kind of prediction when this, like, B2B wave will finally unfold? Will it be another two, three, five years ahead? Or is it very difficult to say? We're there now, right? If, if you look at, is it possible in a B2B context for banks and enterprises to engage with DeFi, right? That's possible today. If you look at custody solutions for crypto assets, digital assets. That's possible today. You see countries like Singapore, Switzerland, and a number of others leading out on both the regulatory landscape, but also the technology landscape in in those settings. So we are able to issue tokens, to market them on an exchange, to be able to work with stablecoins in, okay, it might be a Swiss franc stablecoin as opposed to a USD stablecoin, depending on the setting. But 
that's feasible today. What I think is next is the degree to which the standards and the complexity of integration comes in the other settings, right? If you talk about global real estate, is that market ready for that sort of disruption or that sort of investment to enable decentralization? Are those parties who are there, the incumbents, are they appropriately motivated to support it? One one important thing is, you know, real estate don't sorry, real estate agents don't like blockchain because it creates transparency, and those organisations trade off in transparency or insider knowledge or whatever you care to use it. If you want to talk about metals and minerals, are you going to see the exchanges for metals and minerals transforming to tokenized models anytime soon? Probably not, because the stock market entities are probably slightly bigger, slightly better funded. It's going to happen in the course of time. But those who lead out are going to be those that are, have the lowest barriers to technology adoption, the lowest regulatory barriers to implementation, and to some extent, some sort of, I don't want to call it centralization, but where, where the market isn't too fragmented, right? where you haven't got 1% share in 100 markets, where you've got maybe two or three or four lead countries that still feel the pain and need to implement the technology to benefit, or you know, where they see significant upside. That's where I think the challenge is coming. Okay, would you, I mean, that the financial services industry is here definitely ahead of the others. That's absolutely clear. If you compare whatever real estate with any kind of industrial application, for example, tokenizing a power plant or, or whatever, would you see branch-specific priorities, any like sector moving faster than the other, or is this hard to say? I think every industry is moving forward. I think you can see, you can see examples. Energy is another great one you talked about. I mean, four years ago, I was working with colleagues in Deloitte talking about tokenizing aircraft. You know, we're seeing EY tokenizing bottles of beer. And again, it's not necessarily creating tokens that become NFTs that people can trade. It's just saying that we're using a blockchain to represent a token representing a physical, it physical item or a unique unit of production that we wish to use. So um, supply chain provenance and sustainability, anybody who has got a supply chain network where they need to demonstrate transparency, huge opportunity there. You've seen a great proliferation in the use of digital fashion over the last 18 to 24 months, where actually I find that super interesting is people expressing themselves with digital goods as opposed to physical also has the benefit of reducing our carbon footprint. Energy and energy production and being able to tokenize or to have Uh, prosumers, heavily regulated, heavily complex. People have smart meters in their homes now and solar panels on their roofs. You've got to have a lot of factors coming into play for that one to scale quickly, although we know it's technically feasible today. Frankly, every instance of tokenization of any industry or any product, any, any insertion in a digital workflow or piece of automation is feasible right now. Right? The difference between any blockchain network scaling Is, is it the commercial case there? Are the participants prepared to support that commercial case with investment and time? So as I said, everything is in play. The clients or the opportunities that I see IBM supporting or that I personally end up supporting. There's a little bit of all of these things, right? That's the, that's the really good news is all of this is happening right now. You just got to look. 
So also regulation plays a, an important role here. I understand the commercial benefits and maybe governance uh, structures. But let's move maybe back to the start of our conversation, right? So the, the B2C arts collectible NFT space. If you look at this, I mean, there has been kind of cooling down a little bit on the price front. But do you think what you see there is pure speculation? Is this a big bubble? Is this going to burst? Or do you think, let's say, these valuations are kind of sustainable? What's your view on this? People are going to continue to pay $600,000 for a JPEG of a rock? Um, or is that is that a price that is attainable at scale? Probably not. Right? What you can say is we're seeing the first evolution of democratized tokenization around art or democratized tokenization around digital collectibles or things of value. Whether that moves on to other incarnations. As I said, I think the important the important next step is context for any NFT. What we have now is we have this sort of JPEG-based format where, you know, in some cases that JPEG isn't even embedded within the chain code. So it's, it's a link that goes out to another image or something that's held somewhere else. It might be on IPFS or on a decentralized file store. It might actually just be on a centralized file server that at some point may come down. And that presents a massive risk to somebody's investment to an extent. Yes, you can still see the code. Yes, you can still see the original transfer at the beginning of it. And in some cases, that nostalgia or that retroness is the same as buying a pair of sneakers that's 50 years old or buying a car that used to belong to a celebrity. The the provenance is still valuable to some people who will value it. Why does anybody pay a million dollars for a piece of art? It's purely down to the story, the romance the provenance behind that, the rarity to some extent, right? But is, a, is a, a piece of art worth 5 million versus 10 million is really just what someone's prepared to pay. And that's relative to their own valuation or maybe some expert's valuation of what that particular thing is worth. I see that, that the more we're able to embed provenance, interoperability, the use of those digital items in context across different platforms, whether that be social media or gaming or just our everyday life, I think that becomes much a bigger pie and then a more addressable market to more people more of the time. Right? People, the, the general public, unless you, know, you are using NFTs as an investment, probably aren't putting pictures of monkeys in their social media profiles or punks or whatever it is. That's just not something they do in the same way that most people on social media don't have laser eyes. It's, it's, a, it's quite a niche domain at the moment, but the more we're able to use digital authenticity, cross-border payment, the ability to trade seamlessly and instantly, and to have the code base from that token insertable into other experiences in the world, the more there's going to be engagement from people in those particular experiences. Right? Think about a digital item that was used or owned once by a particular content creator, a gamer, maybe a celebrity in the same way as the car example, right? That then gets used as you know a, a winning item in an important esports challenge or that was worn on a virtual red carpet somewhere or in a concert, right? An Ariana Grande dress that was one of one created by Dolce & Gabbana that was worn at a particular charity event and was auctioned off that you can then wear in your own social media experience in Decentraland or on Twitter or in some sort of other filter, that starts having more provenance, more interest, more history in the same ways you can buy, you know, Don Johnson's car 
or Liz Hurley's dress collection, but you can proliferate that. More people can participate in creating that content and more people who are fans can engage in buying that or speculating behind that and using that and having, in, in a sense, real value behind what it is they want to do with that digital item next. That, to me, is a bigger pie, not a bubble bursting. Clear. And I think that brings me to my next question. And you partly answered it already. If we look at the prices of the board ape, my, my favorite one, I mentioned it, I think also our riddle and code, the panel is the 5809. This is a, a golden board ape. The value is now more than a million, right? CryptoPunk's valuation have grown from 1 billion to 5.4 billion from July this year to October. So this is a five-fold increase, right? For Jack Dorsey's tweet, I think first tweet, they paid $2.9 million. So what are the factors behind these valuations? You mentioned a couple of them, but maybe can you elaborate a little bit on it? And we can do it like in a gamified way. Maybe I'll put also some of my thoughts uh, into it. What would you say the the most important factor when it comes to pricing or, or it comes to the valuation of an NFT? This is where I get into the, this is not investment advice. This isn't, this isn't strategic advice. This isn't even intelligent advice, probably for me at this point, because <laughs> if, if I, I would want somebody who's, whose job is valuation to kind of weigh in on this one, because I suspect there's a lot more factors than we're going to come up with. But to me, there's objective and subjective valuation, right? Objective means that there is an opportunity cost or that there has been a cost of materials or a cost of production associated with it. Right. For an NFT, if you have to mint it on the Ethereum blockchain, the cost of minting is already $1,000. You obviously don't want to accept less than $1,000 for NFT or you shouldn't have minted it in the first place. Right. So, so this, this is kind of what sits in the base valuation. right? And anybody who sells an NFT for less than the cost of gas to be able to mint it is, is either assuming that they've got, maybe they've got a rider later on in terms of a resale. So they're, they're happy to invest the thousand up front if that thing goes to the moon and eventually pays them back a million later, right? That becomes more interesting. The rest of it then really is how much is somebody prepared to pay, right? If, if, if you've got a buoyant crypto market with lots of people having crypto funds available, that's part of it. What is the investment pooling behind this, right? So if you look back at the Banksy NFT that sold for 60 plus million, that was actually a fractionalized fund which actually wasn't one person paying 64 million. It was a collection of people all buying together. And so they own a tokenized share in an NFT, which I think is super cool, right? Illustration of fractionalization tokens on tokens, essentially. The rest of it then is, you know, what do you anticipate the future value of these things to be? The challenge there is how do you objective, objectively evaluate that? Right? How do you know how many tokens there are going to be? You know, there's only ever going to be 10,000 board apes or you know, that there are only ever the same 10,000 CryptoPunks. But how do you value a CryptoPunk versus a CryptoKitty versus something else that may exist that may be more interesting later on? That becomes the valuator's challenge. And in reality, it comes down to market forces. If the crypto market took a hit and went down to one-tenth of its current valuation tomorrow, I reckon you'd see a knock-on effect in the price and valuation of NFTs should someone choose to sell them. I think it's a really difficult space to analyze objectively in the same way you can argue that the price or the volatility of crypto is very, very difficult to evaluate objectively. 
I 100% agree with you. And I think respect to valuation, we have to kind of decouple the intrinsic value of the art piece and the value of Ethereum. Let me go through five or six factors that you just tell me if you think personally they are relevant for the value of an, of an NFT. Is it important on which chain the NFT is minted? So yes, Ethereum... No. I will say on that one. Yeah. Yes, because if you've got to believe that that item is going to exist in perpetuity, and if it's minted on a blockchain or on a platform where there is a risk that that content isn't going to survive or that that chain may not be maintained or supported, that becomes a challenge. Absolutely um, agree. I do it now in a, in, a, in a fast track. NFT metadata on-chain or off-chain, does it make a difference? It depends. I'm going to answer on that one. On-chain, I think, is super helpful. It's not always possible to put that high-volume data on-chain or it becomes very expensive to do so. What you've got to then look at is what's the tech stack that you're using to have the linked content remain in perpetuity. Okay. The creator and the community, I think you already mentioned this. Scarcity? Always a factor, right? Something that is, is less available would typically be valued higher. So yeah, I'd say so. People may buy into the idea of artificial scarcity to some extent. For fungible tokens, for example, everybody says that there's a limited run on Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is divisible. So it's it's, it's, a, it's a bit hmm. of a, a bit of an infl inflationary statement in a deflationary in an inflationary cryptocurrency. Anyway, yes. <laughs> Release pace. So how many NFTs? So even uh, independent of scarcity, I mean, you have a thousand NFTs. If they are released within a day, a week, or a year, does this make a difference? Oh, that's a good one. I want to believe that the release mechanism or the approach does. And this is one that there are lots of mechanics. Take uh, Keir's example with Souls. He's looking at creating a, a mechanic where the value of minting or the cost of minting, sorry, increases over time. So early adopters are rewarded for, with lower costs. Late adopters are, are not penalized, but participation becomes more expensive the later you get in. Similar with investments in, in startups or in businesses, right? So you can build around mechanics that deliberately create that. I, I think that's a fascinating space to look at. Cool. Richness. So how many kind of additional features do NFTs have uh, become 3D, become from static to moving picture? They have additional audio. Does it affect price? Less important for me, because I think you're still going to see the original low fidelity punks and so on still be valued because they're older, they're scarce. You know, the same way that, you know, buying Michael Jordan's television from 1980 versus buying the Mona Lisa, you're not really comparing apples and apples. So I don't know where I got that analogy from, but you know, <laughs> again, it will, it will be in the eye of the beholder to some extent. Let me make a last point here on this. I, in preparation for this podcast, I found or researched a brand new study from a team of scientists from UK, Denmark, Italy, US. Uh, it, it's, and, and I can recommend it to, to all our listeners. It's called Mapping the NFT Revolution, Market Trends, Trade Networks, and Visual Features. So these are scientists. They analyzed more than 6 million trades of 4.7 million NFTs from, I think, June 2017 to April 21. And what they found out, and I think that's especially compelling, is that 
two factors in their regression or AI analysis, they, they did machine learning analysis, they did there, is that sales history and visual features are good predictors uh, of price. So price correlates strongly with the medium price of the NFT sold within the same category, right? So if you are in a board ape category, obviously, if a new board ape is launched, that's um, a value indicator. But not even only this, if you then build another ape, right, this also drives valuation. And there are also visual features which play a role there. I will not go into every detail, but I think that that's a recommendation to, to our listeners to have a look at it. So I think there is a huge subjective part and there's a supply and demand part, but there are some factors which we discussed now, which give investors at least a hint, kind of objective factors on finding the, the right or a proper valuation of an NFT if they want to, want to buy it. Yeah, I'd argue the, the features one is objective. The reference pricing is highly subjective because the component factors of setting that pricing could be the platform, could be social media, could be pump and dump, it could be that it's been endorsed by celebrities or not. There's a huge amount that goes into that. A ref reference pricing, I think, from human behavior perspective, yes, absolutely, right? Saying, well, this one sold for this much, so I'm not going to sell. But actually, a value-based pricing on that same artifact might lead you to a much, much higher price or a much, much lower price. So the ability for the platforms to affect or for people who have a stake in the platforms or the content to modify or manipulate that price to then as a result have a greater impact. Quite difficult to model, but something that people need to consider. Now for our last question, I would really like to ask you our golden question. And the golden question is always a bit more open and we give the guests a lot of space to elaborate on their opinion and look a bit into the future and share some of their knowledge again with our listeners. So, Anthony, what do you think are the hallmarks of a really solid NFT project? You know, you mentioned some may be pump and dumps. Others, you have to be careful because metadata is off-chain and maybe not forever. Then some are on non-Ethereum chains where the thing with finality is maybe questionable. So what do you think people should really watch out for? Any tips and tricks you can share with our audience? I love that question. I also love the idea of the golden question. I, I think I'm going to answer this one in two parts, right? What, what is it that I think makes a good tokenization initiative and what should people be mindful of as they are looking to either design their own or to evaluate other people's? So I think with any project, whether you're using blockchain, tokens, any investing any form of technology is that you are trying to address a problem, that you are looking to create an experience, that you are looking to uniquely address in a way that somebody else hasn't something that is meaningful to the world that could be reducing carbon footprint that could be allowing people to be banked when they're unbanked you're allowing participation and investment in, in, a, in a, from a global basis that you are being able to create transparency where it didn't exist before where you're allowing people to democratize the creation of something digital or be able to participate in platforms with multiple forms of content. Those, those human needs, those desires can go range from the hugely sexy and interesting and creative, the ability to express yourselves with digital fashion, the ability to invest in real estate in a country that you will never visit, the ability to crowdfund the project that may transform the lives of billions of individuals. Right. If, if you can objectively break down what are those things and how is the technology supporting it? Not one of those statements where it says blockchain will do this, blockchain will do that. 
that you have clearly stated the market, you've clearly stated the problem, you've clearly stated the role of the technology, you've identified that the people or the ecosystem that you are going to support, they have validated that they are open to this and they are participating or supporting as well. These are some of the factors on these sorts of platforms or projects, which I think increase the value of delivering the experience or investing in the technology such that they will remain for as long as they are valuable. Right? A tokenized bottle of beer may be less valuable 10 years from now than a tokenized board ape. But again, value value, and the term in which you are receiving that value, right? if you're supporting sustainability and the planet still exists within 100 years versus the value of that board ape in 100 years, very, very different story. And so again, it depends very much on the beholder or on the person of what value am I looking for? Am I looking on value to myself, value to the people, financial value, investment value, et cetera? As you're looking at these sorts of projects, I would say there's probably a few things. Thing one, it's basically understand the legals, understand the tech, understand the commercial model. So read the fine print. How likely is this platform or this initiative to remain in perpetuity? What are the commitments from a legal perspective in terms of the content that you are purchasing or that you're going to end up owning? What what do you end up owning? Do you own the right? Do you own the code? Do you own a copy of the right? Are there any other factors that are worth looking into? And there's a very, very strong blockchain and NFT legal community, far more versed in the legalities of these things, jurisdiction by jurisdiction than myself. Dennis Hillemann specifically in Germany, Arena Hiva in Switzerland and UAE, and many others, right? So, so go seek out the blockchain lawyers because this is a topic. Thing two, in terms of checking the architecture, what are we building? How is it going to work? How is the token going to be used? Underneath that, you know, in the terms of the commercial model, how how are those tokens going to be used, redeemed, burned? There's a million and one different combinations of tokenomics that you can use in terms of decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, the governance model around these sorts of initiatives, that how they're funded, how they're raised, or is it just a token that's issued by a company that everybody knows? But it creates, but it creates useful value because it allows people to participate, or it allows for transparency, or it allows for easier settlement and reconciliation. What's the commercial model of how the token is valued? How it, what problems it solve, and how do you how do you value that problem? Also, not just the token itself. If I'm investing a million dollars in building a platform to solve a problem that's worth a hundred million, great. If that problem's worth a million, I'm probably not going to develop new technology to invest behind it. And that problem may not go away or that platform may not be reusable in other contexts once I've built it. So if you build this wonderful walled garden that's expensive, same with any blockchain platform, whether it's a DLT, whether it's public blockchain, the commercials have got to make sense. The problem has got to be meaningful. The experience should exist and be supported on technology that's going to exist in perpetuity, or at least for as long as you consider the value case behind what you do. And the architecture has to make sense too. It has to be something that's going to be easy to integrate, that's going to be easy to adopt. How are people going to engage with this technology? Even MetaMask in and of itself can be complex for most people. It's not not something that everybody immediately instinctively gets. Right? It may be that you're using tokenization and you don't want to ever use the word blockchain and NFT. You just want to make sure that the platform's decentralized because you want lots of people to be able to connect to it. Long ramble aside, for anything in technology to succeed. It has to be desirable to the customer, feasible from a technology perspective and viable commercially. If you can evaluate any project or as you're designing any project to consider those three factors, 
whether you need tokens or not, whether you need blockchain or not, and you can come back with a resounding yes to those three things, chances are you're onto something good. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And of course, also what you mentioned, it needs to fit in one's own investment thesis and needs to, you need to be able to sleep well. And if you were not to touch it for a couple of years, and you can be very happy with that uh, without checking prices every day, that's also a very good sign. Of course, again, nothing here is investment advice. So, Anthony, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, yeah, definitely to all our listeners, check out Anthony's podcast, Blockchain Won't Save the World. Anthony, anything you would like to say or share with our listeners? I want to thank you guys for some great questions. This was a, a really thoughtful jaunt around the world of NFTs. Please do remember out there that NFTs is much, much more as a technology capability than just pictures of monkeys that are available on a MetaMask wallet. There's so much more we can do with this technology that we've been able to do for years and years and years, but somehow the institutional memory has failed us and we've forgotten a bunch of those other great use cases around tokenization that do have genuine, really interesting, fantastic real world value. Shout out to all the people out there pushing the boundaries around tokenization, around digital fashion, around augmented experiences, around interoperability and platforms. There's so much great stuff going on. Anybody wants to reach out to me, please feel free to connect on LinkedIn. Check out the podcast. We've got loads and loads of content in there around enterprise use cases, institutional use cases, and a little bit of a roast around NFTs too. So I got a few friends together and we went through some of the worst examples of NFTs that we thought were out there that have the least viable models or that are the most ridiculous. So go check out the roast as well. And Simon Carmichael, thank you to the both of you for making this happen. I can only recommend this NFT roast. I listened to it, especially the, the two ladies had a very interesting case study about unsolicited messages. I can only recommend listening to this, to this podcast on NFT roast. Yeah? Definitely go check it out. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Also, Carmichael, thank you so much for being my co-host. Pleasure as always. And now... Wait for the next episode, stay loyal, stay hungry, stay tuned to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets.